We are starting a brand new series titled The Revolutionary. I'm super, I'm super, super excited about this because most of us have been told that Jesus died for us, but few realize just how much he has revolutionized the way we live our lives here on earth. His views of dignity, beauty, justice, and service have become the backbone of, human, uh, of virtually every advanced human society, which means that even those who do not believe in him right, have been impacted by the way he has taught, by the way he has led his life here on earth, and so much so that they probably don't even know that. And they, and they have not been giving him credit for. The bulk of his teachings weren't about how to get from here, earth, onto heaven, but how to truly be human. And so the question that we should be asking ourselves at this point in time right now is, could better understanding of his impact on all society transform the way that we experience him personally? In other words, can, 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 if we understand him and his purpose of why he was, came down here, of why he taught the things that he taught, if we can better understand that, can that make us or help us live our life here on earth better? And secondly, how did he expect his followers, you and I, to continue bringing his revolutionary vision to those here on earth? So let's start off with this week's title, which is A Revolution of Grace. A Revolution of Grace. But before we talk about how Jesus was revolutionary and how he impacted us through grace, let's talk about what is a revolutionary. What is a revolutionary? In fact, it's difficult. It's difficult to define, but regardless of which discipline, field, or area these revolutionaries come from, all revolutionaries seem to share four common traits. Number one, they're original. They see things from a fresh, creative, or alternative perspective. Number two, they're radical, right? They prioritize their area of passion above all else. Number three, they're heretical, right? They violate the status quo and challenge deeply held assumptions. And number four, they're kind of transforming. They're transformational. They change the way people see and do things forever. So those four characteristics are what really defines someone who is revolutionary. Now, once you take a look at these list of traits, there are certain obvious names that should be popping up and coming to your mind. Albert Einstein is one of them, right? Things that he impacted were Steve Jobs is another one. Jesus, of course, is one of them. And so is Raffaele Esposito. Anybody know who Raffaele Esposito is? He created pizza. <laughs> he transformed the, the way we do things in this life for the better. Back in the days, he was the creator of pizza in Naples, right? Just, just FYI. That, that could be a trivia question one day for you, right? Einstein revolutionized the world by showing us a new way to do math. 
Jobs revolutionized the world by showing us a new way to compute and connect. And Jesus revolutionized the world by showing us a new way to be human. In fact, I would argue that Jesus had a bigger impact on the way uh, the world works than any other revolutionary. He wasn't just a revolutionary. He was the revolutionary. Even if you're not a Christian, right, and don't imagine ever being one, the impact of Jesus' ideas on our day-to-day life is undeniable. Here's why I say that. Academics, academics have a term for how cultures have historically transformed due to the widespread belief in Jesus. It's called redemption and lift. Redemption and lift. And this, this idea, this, this word kind of is defined by, because it's, it's been well documented that societies who become predominantly Christian experience economic growth. They, they have an increase in the value of education, the elevated treatment of women, and it spikes in entrepreneurial thinking and a sense of personal responsibility. Think about that. By just believing in Jesus' ways, all of these things impact and change our culture. This means that just the fact that you live in a modern, advanced society means that your life, even without being a believer in the, in the deity of Jesus or in, in the belief of Jesus, is better because of Jesus. So when your friends start talking about, oh, I don't believe in Jesus, oh, but you benefit from him. You live in that good life because of him. Jesus changed human society in more ways than we can ever count or describe. But during this series, right, over the next several weeks, we're going to focus on, uh, and we're going to focus in on four particularly radical aspects of his philosophy and, or as, as early Christians will call it, his ways, right? And they are grace, truth, good, and beauty. Grace, truth, good, and beauty. And today we're going to start with grace. Now, I think most of us kind of have somewhat of a grip or an understanding of what is grace. So I'm going to change the table around here. I'm going to flip it here and say, what is the opposite of grace? All right, let's start thinking it the other way around. What is the opposite of grace? Well, the opposite of grace could be making someone pay. The one word version of this is revenge. Revenge. Anybody love a good revenge movie? I love revenge movie. Like, like uh, John Wick. Like, like uh, Ocean's Eleven. And my favorite, Gladiator. Come on. Come on. Notice I didn't have those romance comedy movies. I'm not into that side of stuff. But think about the, the good revenge movies, right? We like movies where someone is being pushed around, held down, taken advantage of, or treated unfairly, right? And this person then decides that they've had enough. Enough is enough, and they go out and get their, to get their revenge. 
where they make everyone who did them wrong pay. We love that kind of stuff. You and I love that stuff, right? Why? Why do we love that stuff? I'll tell you why. Because there's a vicariousness to it. There's a vicariousness to it. Why? Why? Because we love watching other people do what we sometimes wish we could, but we can't. We love watching that kind of stuff. Right? Like, I've watched, I can't tell you how many times I've watched Gladiator. I'm even immune to the commercials now. Like, like it doesn't matter. It gives me, I know how much time I got enough to get some, some chips and then come back. Right? But I love that movie. Here's a man who was just minding his own business. And he gets to do, get revenge, get, get payback, right? We've all wanted to yell at or slap someone who wronged us. But our notion of civility, our morals, or our fear of prison, whichever the two, right, prevents us from doing so. But there's something, there's something invigorating about watching someone else do it. Your chest starts to flare out, like, man, don't deny it. Because you watch those movies and you're like, ooh, get them, yeah. Like, you start flexing in front of the TV. Like, like you wished it was you. But it's not you. Right? It's Russell Crowe. It's somebody, it's somebody different. Tom Cruise, whoever, Right? We love seeing someone who feels powerless rise up and take back their power and demand justice. Now, obviously, most revenge movies take things a little bit further than we would normally uh, uh, want to or ever would. And so maybe you're like, man, I've never really fantasized about knocking my boss over the head with the keyboard for making me feel the way he makes me feel. But you have thought at one point or another, man, I wish, I wish this person could experience the same feeling that he makes other people feel, right? I wish that someone could, could, could come in and, and make him feel inconvenienced the way he has inconvenienced my life. Maybe it was someone who cut you off in traffic and you, you, you ran out and you sped up. And you got in front of them, he said, take that. Right? Or maybe it was someone who didn't include you in your plans. So you made plans just so that you wouldn't include them. Don't raise your hand. I know. Or maybe someone who, who says something hurtful to you and you want to fire back with something hurtful back to them. Deuteronomy 25, verse 11 says, Now hear this up here. Don't put this up yet. Don't put this up yet. Okay? I just want to give the disclaimer. <laughs> I want to just give you the statement that this is scripture and not my words. Just giving you a heads up. Are clear? Okay, let's put it up. Deuteronomy 25. If two Israelite men get into a fight and the wife of one tries to rescue her husband by grabbing the testicles of the other man, you must cut off her hand and show her no pity. I didn't say that. That's scripture. Just want to be clear on that. Housewives of the ancient Israel, in effect here. Right? Yeah. Part of us reads this and thinks, man, that's funny, uh, first of all, but it's absurd. It's absurd and extreme at the same time. And another part of us thinks, man, what I do like about this is that, well, 
The rules are clear. Rules are clear and people aren't allowed to get away with stuff. The most well-known reference is found in Leviticus 24, where it's in verse 19, it says, anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure any another person must be paid back in kind. Whoever kills an animal must pay for it in full, but whoever kills another person must be put to death. You know what the people back then liked about that? It's the same thing that we like about it now. That it's fair. It's fair. And every God-fearing Jew lived according to this ideology for hundreds and hundreds of years. By the time that we kind of roll into the New Testament, the Jews have been overrun by the Romans. They're being abused and they're being oppressed. They're being pushed around, overworked and overtaxed. There's rampant abuse of power. They're waiting on a Messiah. They're waiting on a revolutionary who'd overthrow the evil, evil empire. Empire, not umpire, empire. But Sorry, I'm thinking about baseball. But the good days. Put the good days behind, uh, the bad days behind him. Put the good days in front, right? To put good guys in power and make all the bad guys pay. A lot of people thought that that person would be Jesus. They thought that would be Jesus. But then Jesus started saying things that kind of, kind of didn't line up with their thought of thinking of how they were raised and taught. Matthew chapter 5 verse 38 says, and you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court, in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry their gear for a mile, carry it for two miles. So all up until this point, they have been told, hey, slap you me and I'm going to slap you back. Whatever you do unto me, it is only right and fair that I would do it unto you. And Jesus jumps on and says, hold up, wait a minute. Let me show you how it's done. We're going to change things up. And if someone has stepped on your toes, and figure out how to escort them differently. Don't step on their toes back. He's talking about a concept called grace. And although it was core to everything that he taught, he never really defined it, grace. He just walked it out. He demonstrated it. When he spoke of it, it was mostly in a story form. And what we can gather from the stories that he shared about grace is that grace is when someone should pay, but they don't. Giving grace is when you have the right uh, uh, or the ability to make someone pay, but you don't. In each of the three scenarios above that we read, the other person deserves to pay for what they did. But Jesus says, 
instead of making them pay, we're going to serve them and show them kindness. Well, that's different. All this time we've heard, listen, if you do something to me, I have every right to do it back to you. And now you're saying no? To kill him with kindness? And his audience was like, what are you talking about, Willis? Like, it doesn't make sense. A big reason I signed up to follow you was because I thought you were going to get, uh, you were going to get all of the people back that I didn't like. Thought you were going to punish them. Thought you were going to make them feel bad and look stupid and get, get them demoted and publicly shame them for being wrong. And if you're not going to use your power to cancel them out, then what's the point of following me? Now, it sounds kind of petty when you hear it out loud, right? But I'm almost certain that you and I both have thought of like this before. At some point or another, you and I raced in front of a car that cut you off just to show them. You and I try to get even with someone who did us wrong, who did our family wrong. You see, they didn't like the idea of having to give grace to those who opposed or offended him or offended them. I'm sure they found themselves trying to write off the idea that maybe, maybe, maybe it was just this one-time get-out-of-jail-free card that Jesus was handing out. It's like a promo thing. Like, if you do this once, you can come follow me, right? Like, this can't be something that he wants us to do all the time. This can't be something that, that he's requiring us to do to live our life this way. And I say this because one time the disciples got disrespected and they acted or reacted this way. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, it says, When Jesus and John, excuse me, when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. In other words, he turned around and said, ta, 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 ta. Slow down. Mm -mm. That's not how we're going to handle this. That's not how we're going to do this. That's not the way I want it. I want to take care of this situation. Jesus is like, no, we're not doing that. That's not my way. And so the big question is, how far was he going to take this thing? How far was he going to make us follow this? How really committed was Jesus in this grace how far how committed was Jesus in this grace thing? Because a lot of ideals or morals go right out the window when people get desperate, when people are afraid, or when their identity is questioned, or it will cost them. So in other words, you, you, you know what the right thing to do is. You know what Jesus said to do. But the moment a challenge is presented, the moment you get uncomfortable, the moment someone steps on your toes, the moment someone cuts you off, mm-mm, mm-mm, uh-uh, not today. Not today, right? Like it's easy to show grace when you're at your best. When everything is going your way, 
and your conditions are preferable and favorable. It's so easy, in fact, that most of us don't even count it as grace. What's impressive is giving grace under fire. What do I mean by that? To give grace when it's costly, when it's painful, when it's difficult to give. That is grace. The disciples got to see that firsthand. There were a lot of powerful people that wanted Jesus dead. And they didn't hate him because he was nice and that he performed uh, miracles. They hated him because he was revolutionary. He was revolutionary. He was bringing out revolutionary ideas. Ideas that, that violated how people saw God. Right? He came to change things around. Right? He said, you've heard it being said this, but now you must do this. So he came to challenge what the people kind of understood. They were reading the, the scrolls. They were reading the, the, the scriptures that, are, that were already presented to them. And Jesus says, oh, no, I, I know what it says there, but we're going to change things up a little bit. And that challenged them. That made them uncomfortable. It violated how people saw God. It violated how people uh, perceived scriptures, how people perceived themselves, how the world around them functioned. It challenged them to live in inconvenient and self-sacrificial ways. And I'm pretty sure that they were all thinking, hey, when, when they finally come for him, what then? When they finally come for him, what then? Will he fight back? Will he fight back? Because now when they, when they start making him uncomfortable, is he going to throw that grace thing out the window? Is he going to abandon it? He's going to throw his hands up and say, okay, come on, get me. To see what you got. Right? Will he make them pay or will he turn the other cheek and give them grace? Matthew 26 speaks into that. Verse 47 says, And Jesus, and even as Jesus and his, uh, excuse me, and even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi. He exclaimed and kissed him and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, I love this, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. Jesus, Jesus wasn't surprised by Judas. Jesus wasn't surprised by this man greeting him, a man that he had done life with, a man that he had broken bread with, a man that he had poured out into him. He wasn't surprised by uh, Judas's. Uh, 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 Judas is uh, kind of, um, gosh, I'm missing the word, betraying him. But yet, he called them friend. 
He greeted him by naming him friend. And he does so calmly, even in the midst of, of an enormous emotional pain. Jesus doesn't react with violence or vengeance. He could have. He could have. He had the right to and the ability to, according to law. But he chose not to. And this blows me away every time that I think about it. Blows me away. But not all of the disciples were as impressed. Not all of the disciples were impressed by the response that Jesus gave as, as I am. Matthew 26, 31 says, But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the highest priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Now the disciple, this disciple reacts in a way most of us probably would. Right? He reacts in a way many of us would. He's just protecting and defending someone that he loves and cares for. He didn't start it. Right? This disciple didn't start it. He was just responding to it. And it wouldn't have been hard for him to justify it by his own religious beliefs, right? An eye for an eye, an ear for a rabbi, right? But Jesus makes it clear that those loyal to his kingdom were called to be different. He says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. There's a way to read this literally and, and metaphorically, which I think is what Jesus was getting at. Because he wasn't just talking to that disciple. He was talking to every disciple. He was talking to each and every single one of us. And he was saying, when someone hurts us and we respond to them just like them, we become them. Think about that. Let that sit for a little bit. When someone hurts us and we respond to them just like them, we become them. You see, revenge turns the oppressed into the oppressor. The only way to be free from them is to not become like them. And of course, if you're one of the disciples watching, <laughs> you're thinking then, what are, we, what, are, what are we supposed to do? Nothing? To sit here and watch it happen? But passivity is not the answer. In another account of this story elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that Jesus doesn't just say something. He actually does something. Luke chapter 22 verse 51 says, But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. In other words, Jesus is making it very clear, very clear that he came to heal wounds, not inflict them. This is who Jesus was. 
right? John 10.10 says the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose, Jesus' purpose, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So Jesus came here on earth to bring life, to give life, not take it. Generally, when we read this, we think, of course, stealing, killing, and destroying is evil. But if someone has done these things to me, I should be able to get back, to, back at them. But Jesus disagreed. He wanted to revolutionize the way we respond to one another. When someone opposed or offended him, Jesus chose responses that would give them life rather than take life, rather than get even with them. But even more frustrating than that was him expecting his disciples to do the same. Church, we all love the idea of grace. We sing it in the songs, right? We talk about it until we're required to give it to people we don't think deserve it. Woo, we love oh, grace, grace, Lord. But when it comes to that moment where we find ourselves required to give grace to someone that we don't think deserves it, now we want to change the song. Don't hold me back. I'm going to get you, right? But if you've never given grace in a state of discomfort to someone you don't think deserves it, I don't know if the thing that you gave was grace. Grace can only be given to someone who has no right to demand it. The moment you've done something to deserve grace, it is by definition no longer grace. But Jesus, no, Jesus is very adamant. He's very adamant we respond with grace. Jesus insisted that while retaliation will hurt them back, only grace can heal us both. That's what he was trying to teach us. Though we think we're getting revenge back for the person hurting us. That doesn't happen. It is only through grace that we can begin to heal them and us. Let me ask you this. Have you ever, have you ever actually gotten someone back? I'll show your hands. Don't raise your hands. You get this strange feeling of enjoyment from it. I wouldn't call it healing. In fact, after you've paid them back, you often realize that it, that it in no way, shape, or form made up for what you lost. This is a hard lesson to learn, church, because it requires a lot of maturity to wrap your mind around this. But it is possible to get there 
even for the most aggressive and reactive of us. I say that because the sword-drawing disciple was eventually able to internalize this. All the New Testament authors keep the disciples' name anonymous, but John puts them on blast. John puts it on Facebook. John puts, John, John puts Peter's name on Facebook, right? Which is probably annoying to Peter, but helpful to us. Because later Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 9, it says, Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Peter was the one that cut off the ear that was trying to defend what they were doing to Jesus. Jesus spoke and he saw Jesus in action when he healed him. He internalized it and then started to preach a different gospel. One that lined up with Jesus' teaching. Peter said this because he had watched Jesus do it, and it left a lasting impression. Peter witnessed just how revolutionary responses helped heal uh, everyone involved. Jesus believed empathizing with, it, uh, with and extending grace to others was the highest form of intelligence and the deepest form of spirituality. When most Christians talk about wanting to go deeper in their faith, they usually mean acquiring more knowledge of Scripture, right? When we hear somebody say, man, I need, a, I need to get deeper in my faith, and they think that it requires them to, to, to memorize and, and, and dive deeper into Scripture. But church, I want to tell you this morning that the deep things of God aren't academic. They're intimate. We all want the mind of God, but what we really need is the heart of God. And that is the difference here on earth. That is how you can tell someone if they're a believer or not. Because many people can quote scripture out of memory. Many people will do it in a classroom, in an event, in a speech. And as soon as they walk out the door, they're not living what they're preaching, what they're saying. And God wants you to have a heart like his. So let me wrap up. Let me wrap this up. Can you imagine, church? Can you imagine if we all adopted Jesus' definition of deep faith? Have we all understood that the deep things of God aren't academic, that it's intimate? Intimate in the sense that we have to take his word and what we learned and what he has shown us, put it in our hearts and act it out. If we saw depth as putting ourselves in someone else's shoes 
and seeking to understand their experiences and their perspectives so well. We could argue that opposing, that we could argue their opposing point of view just as well as they could. Imagine if we can do that. And then respond to them with grace and kindness in a way that gives them life. That doesn't mean you always give them what they want, but that you give them what they need in a way they're most likely to receive it and take a baby step in the right direction based on it. I often wonder why there are people that we do life with, people that don't know Jesus, people that that don't come to church, who you still do life with. I always wonder why they don't want to come and experience what you have experienced or what we have experienced. I always wonder why people don't want Jesus. Like, if I'm sharing everything that God is capable of doing it, doing in your life, why don't people want Jesus? And every single time I'm led back to the point is, that how you are living your life does not add up to the Jesus that you're talking about. In other words, people are not coming to know more of Jesus or wanting to know more of Jesus because we're not doing the rest, the best representation of living a life filled with of Jesus. Does that make sense? Which then brings on another question is am I the hindrance for someone coming to Christ? Am I doing an injustice? Am I just talk and no action? Am I living the way Jesus wants me to live? Because if I'm living the way Jesus wants me to live, then someone will take notice and someone has to say, I want what they have. So church, I think we need to ask ourselves, are my responses to others shaped more by giving them life or getting them back. Because it seems to me a lot of Christians are under the impression that spiritual depth means knowing so much scripture that you can prove to anyone how wrong, how stupid, how misinformed, or how misguided they are. That's not Jesus' philosophy. That's not Jesus' way. That was the Pharisees. And why do we give grace? Because God freely gives it to us. 
you don't have to pay for it. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to jump through hoops. You didn't have to sing on cue. You didn't have to pay tithes. You didn't have to say a thousand prayers to receive grace. No, he freely gives it. So ask yourself, who needs the same grace from me, from you? Who needs the same grace that God has given to you? In fact, let's take it a step further. What if your goal, what if your purpose was being an expert in the field of grace? What if you left here today saying, you know what, I'm going to try to figure this out, man. I want to give grace, and I want to give grace in abundance. I want to show the world who Jesus is. Think about it. If the greatest in the world, that's something that you love, offered to personally mentor you, guarantee you that if you followed their instructions, that you could just be, you could be just as good as them, at what they're the best at, but it's going to take a lot of practice. It's going to take some energy, maybe even a lifetime of it. Would you do it? Would you do it? If you saw the way someone lived their life and they lived their life to the fullest and he promised you, man, if you do what I do, if you say what I say, if you act the way I'm acting, you're going to live an incredible life. I promise you that. Would you do it? I believe most of us would. I believe most of us would. Jesus was the best at living his life here on earth. The best. He was the best at being human. He was the best at building relationships. He was the best at responding well, at giving grace. And he's inviting you and I to follow him, to live that same life here on earth. Why wouldn't you jump at the opportunity to live a life like his? Why wouldn't you jump at the opportunity to join the revolution? He's inviting you, church. He's inviting you to come and be a part of it. not just going to be able to get away with by saying it. You're going to have to do it. You're going to have to live it. Amen? I'm excited as next week we jump into the revolution of truth. Today is grace. Leave here looking for those opportunities to show grace. Yeah, they won't deserve it. But you are called to give it. Amen.